0: Hello, fellow readers. In today's bonus episode, we're exploring queerness in speculative fiction. Welcome to a reader's community. I'm your host, Fasti Today, I'm in conversation with Keeley Shinners, who is the author of How to Build a Home for the End of the World. Their debut novel is a dystopian road trip novel that uses queerness in a quite expansive way as not just a description of desire, but also as a strategy to critique ways of being and living, especially when faced with a crisis like climate catastrophe. Later in the episode, I'm joined by Colin to explore the potential that queerness offers SpecVic and vice versa, a potential that he says is sometimes really well utilized and other times not utilized enough.
1: Homophobia is a failure of imagination. To experience queerness functionally makes you realize, oh, no, like none of these things are as fixed as part of our lived experience. We understand that this isn't the end all be all of things. It can be better. It, it can grow.
0: Stick around for that conversation. Here's my conversation with Keeley Shinners about their novel How to Build a Home for the End of the World.
2: Uh, uh. Hi, Keeley. Welcome coffee. to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Big fan of readers community, so happy to be here. Thanks. So we
0: were going to do this initially at your launch, but then, you know, technical difficulties, the sound quality wasn't great. So we're doing this
2: again. Well, thank you for having me again. (laughs) Let's start by you just giving me a couple of sentences about yourself. So my name is Keeley Shinners. I am an author from Fox Lake, Illinois. I moved to Cape Town officially in 2018 to work on my master's in creative writing. And that dissertation culminated in an early draft of what is now my debut novel, How to Build a Home for the End of the World, which came out this year, 2022, with Perennial Press.
0: And congrats. It's been a long process. I'm happy to see it out in the world. Um, And How to Build a Home for the End of the World is what we're talking about today. So this is a queer dystopian road trip novel about a young woman, Mary Beth, who finds herself at what some call the end of the world, when water is very scarce. And um, in search of love, she goes on a road trip with her father, Donnie. Yeah, so it's a book about climate catastrophe, but it's also a book about justice and about love and
2: about growing up coming of age. So could you tell me about the origin of the story? So I first got the idea for the book in 2017. I took a road trip with my father from our hometown, which is in Fox Lake, Illinois, to... Los Angeles, California, where I was doing my undergrad at the time. And we elected to take the Route 66 trail, which has kind of been dilapidated since the road itself got closed down, I think in the 70s or 80s. So driving cross-country through America, driving from ghost town to ghost town Mm. to ghost town... In January 2017, when Trump had just been inaugurated as president, it just felt like the dystopia was already so present. I had this idea that you could write a very realistic novel, say, about a girl falling in love or a girl going on a road trip with her dad, and just say that it was happening at the end of the world, Mm -hmm. and probably no one would bat an eye because the world around us is already so dystopian.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's such an interesting point. And I think so many of us had those moments during COVID, especially during the lockdowns when, you know, Yuri entered the world. Um, and it looks like the world has already ended. Like I remember the first time I went grocery shopping in the hard lockdown and it was like a very misty morning. So you couldn't see more than 10 meters in front of you. But within those 10 meters that were visible to me, I couldn't see a single other human being, just like traffic lights with no cars. Mm. And this is something that this book, So the the book questions the idea of the end of the world and that it's this fixed point in the future. And I think that's something that we talk about a lot, like that climate Mm. catastrophe is some point in the future that is still coming that we have to prepare for. And the book challenges that because it's not it's set in the future and it's interested in the future, but it's also interested in the past and in shifting the understanding of the end in the world and where it it takes place in time. Mm. Can you tell me a bit more about how you think about that, about the end of the world?
2: Sure. I mean, as far as I'm concerned... The world ended in 1492 with the acceleration of capitalism mm-hmm. and the acceleration of colonialism, acceleration of, of of Western imperialism, uh the genocide of indigenous peoples the globe the globe over. And I think that our modern society, what you know, whatever that means, is living with the remains of that apocalypse. Mm-hmm. So I think we already know what. It feels like to grow up in post-apocalyptic times, to live in a world that is kind of culturally ravaged and to have these tensions bubbling under the surface that people don't necessarily understand. And with regards to climate catastrophe, as you say, the way we talk about global warming or climate change is always, you know, a, p- a prediction, something that's going to happen in the future. But we're already seeing it happening now. For example, in a Home for the End of the World, the crisis that people refer to as the end of the world is a water crisis. And that was inspired by my time living in Los Angeles, as it was going through a drought and wildfires were ravaging the coast of California. And then, you know, i had already started writing the book. And then I moved to Cape Town in 2018, when we had one of the worst water crises Mm -hmm. the world has ever seen with all of us literally counting down the days until we weren't going to have any water left. Yeah. And if that's not already the end of the world, then I don't know what is.
0: Yeah. And as we record this, the Eastern Cape is currently in a drought and then Mm. day zero is less than 30 days away. Exactly. There's a line in the book that I love and that I think about a lot, which is so Mary Beth's love interest. She meets Ida at at a water collection point. And because her family has run out of water, like Mary Beth's family has run out of water for the first time. And then Mary Beth makes reference to the end of the world. And then Ida corrects her and says the end of the world has been happening. History is dystopian. And um, the only reason why you'd think that the end of the world is in the future is because, I mean, she doesn't use these words, but essentially because of your privilege and Mm. because of your sense of entitlement. Mm. Like if you have had reliable access to resources and you feel that they're yours Mm -hmm. um, in some meaningful way, then you think that the end of the world is an event. So this bringing in the past, as as you've been doing in this conversation as well, um, is a preoccupation in the book. And ancestry is, is a preoccupation and accountability and reckoning. Um, can you talk to me about how those themes come up in the novel?
2: Sure. So when the water runs out in Mary Beth's family, her family is the only family left living in Fox Lake, Illinois. They have access to some fresh water, although they have to boil it boil the pollutants out to be able to to drink it. But for the most part they are self-sufficient and Mary Beth, who's seventeen, and her sister and her mother and her grandmother, whom she lives with, are kind of not allowed to leave the house. Their father, Johnny, goes out to the city to get supplies every now and again, but for the most part they are living in this home with very little contact with the outside world. And Donnie's whole thing is that, you know, if he can just keep the family together, the nuclear family Mm -hmm. together, then that's survival. And when they run out of water for the first time, Mary Beth for the first time in her life kind of rebels and runs away and goes to Chicago to see what's going on there. And, Then she sees all these different iterations of what survival means. Mm. She meets Ida, who is also a young girl, but, you know, instead of just dilly-dallying around at home, which is what (laughs) Mary Beth does, she delivers water to people in her neighborhood who are disabled or elderly or otherwise can't make it to the water collection point. And Mary Beth decides that she's going to spend this day, that she's run away Helping Ida with these deliveries. And what attracts her to Ida is, you know, not only a crush or a desire, but also this idea of survival doesn't just mean like we're keeping the family together and we're doing fine. Survival also means care and accountability to your community. And she sees how much more full and interesting Ida's life is because she's participating in community with other people and other people are showing the care that she gives them back to her in so many ways. And that kind of clicks for Mary Beth and is ultimately maybe the way I was thinking it, more of a symbol, you know, taking whiteness versus non-whiteness. When whiteness is not the color of your skin, but a system of sharing privilege from one generation to the next and in that system, you know, creating bonds in the nuclear family that are very rigid and almost entrapping and definitely doesn't let anybody else into that situation. And Mary Beth realizes that the thing that she thought was keeping her safe, which is her family, you know, her whiteness, was actually sheltering her and making her naive to the world. Yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah, there is a limited kind of cooperation and care and love in, in the nuclear family, but it's organized around a principle of individualism, about mm. keeping things for yourself and keeping other, things, other people out. Mm. Donnie describes survival as generations of men who knew how to take care of themselves. Yeah, And then, <laughs> Ida inca- I mean, and then Mary Beth encounters a different idea of what survival means through Ida. So this is a, a queer attraction. Mary Beth is falling in love with another girl. It seems to me like this this alternative view of survival that's like organized around care and cooperation mm. and like widening the circle and more about community rather than the nuclear family, that seems to me very queer. Like That seems mm. like a queer ideology mm. versus um, the nuclear family, which is more of a heteronormative ideology. Is that also how you think about it? Or like how does queerness feed into this alternative idea of survival?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean... In a literal sense, you know, Ida's family, she's got three mothers and it's revealed that, you know, two of them are her aunts and one of them is her biological mother. But she doesn't reveal who they are because the important thing is that they've got this family which is kind of fungible and kinships which have more to do with caring for and loving each other and people kind of coming in and out than like we are the heterosexual nuclear family and everything must be as it was. And that kind of leniency, that freedom, that queerness allows their community to respond and maybe in a more organic way to crisis. Mm. Whereas the way that Donnie responds, for example, as kind of the patriarch of that household and very much somebody who suffers under the pressure that he puts on himself from the patriarchy, being the patriarch in the household, you know, he's very reactionary and he can't get out of his head the way that things are supposed to be done. So yeah, absolutely. The queerness in the novel, you know, has to do with the character's desire for one another, but it's also much bigger than that. Yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah, so Donnie, he is very negatively impacted by his role as the patriarch. And when they run out of water, he's kind of, he kind of loses it because he doesn't no longer (laughs) do the thing he's supposed to do, Mm. which is... the the provider and the like the leader of the household Mm. so this book is also a coming of age novel so marybeth when she encounters ida and like a different way of being it's kind of a moment of an individuation for her from her Mm. family Mm. and creating a separate identity from her family questioning her family her questioning takes the shape of investigating what love could look like Mm. instead of what it has looked like for her Mm -hmm. So she has to decide which values to discard and which to acquire. But also her relationship with her father needs to change. So she doesn't leave her whole family behind. She and Donnie go on this road trip together. They're together throughout nearly the entire book. But the terms on which they were engaging are no longer acceptable to Marybeth. As she becomes an adult with her own views, the whole relationship needs to recalibrate. Mm. So in that way, Donnie also needs to change. Mm. Kind of two things I want to ask you. The one is... That aspect of a coming of age novel and the ways in which their relationship is reconfigured. And then, do those ways bring Donnie more freedom? Like, do you think it's like Mm. a liberatory experience for him as well?
2: Mm. Yeah. So, I'll rewind a little bit just for the listeners who haven't read the book. Mary Beth, after she meets Ida and they have one kiss, (laughs) Ida confesses to her that she's actually not going to stay in Chicago, she's going to go to California to get this surgery to like a a new organ because she's chronically ill. And Mary Beth, in her little bit of an obsessive situation, says, let me do it for you. I want to be with you. I want you to take my body. I want to throw myself on the sword for you. And Ida challenges her and says, you know, that's not the kind of care that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about you throwing yourself on the sword for another person. We're not talking about instant absolution. We're talking about a long process of Right. It's almost too easy to just sacrifice yourself. Like it, the kind of heroic gestures, mm-hmm. yeah, you need more work. Mm. So Ida asks Mary Beth, What is love like for you? Because Mary Beth says, I love you. This is why I want to do this. Ida says, What is love like for you? I'd really like to know. And that question kind of sticks in Mary Beth's mind and and she is forced to go home and reckon with this. You know, why did I think that I wanted to be the savior in that scenario? If I'm not the savior, then what am I? What Mm -hmm. am I supposed to be doing? So in terms of the structure of the coming of age novel, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of like a, you know, it's the child coming into their personality, almost as if that's something kind of preordained. (laughs) And I wanted my Mary Beth to kind of be unzipped or unraveled rather than to come into a new personality, I suppose. Or in order to figure out who she is, she doesn't necessarily get that from external experiences. She gets that from kind of going inward, reflecting on her assumptions, her heritage, what she's learned. And she does that by spending so much time with her father who represents a lot of the stuff that she comes to resent, but is also a complex man who loves her very much Mm -hmm. and is a part of her life. So her coming of age, maybe counter to the normal queer coming of age story, which is reject the family, find your chosen family. Mary Beth is kind of encouraged into a situation where, you know, she actually has to look at her family and as you said, like renegotiate its terms, not just say blanket, like, I don't want you anymore. I want to run away. I want to throw myself into a situation, which I think is going to absolve my past mistakes or absolve my family lineage, but actually say, I love you. How are we going to make this work for both of us? How are we going to take care of each other? And Donnie is in his 50s, but He's challenged to kind of grow up as well and face, you know, some of the lies that he's been telling about himself because his daughter needs him to do that. And other people besides Mary Beth towards the end of the book come to rely on him as well. I don't know. He definitely struggles with that task more than Mary Beth does. So I don't know if he reaches a point at the end of the book where he grows up or he's liberated. But he's certainly less bogged down by his own assumptions of what he ought to be doing. Yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah, in that sense, he seems a little bit freer. So he's he's also, uh, I don't know, this is a bit of a spoiler, but (laughs) (laughs) he's an amnesiac by the end of the book. Mm. He sort of steadily Mm. loses his grip on the past throughout the book. And then by the end, he doesn't really know who he is or who his daughter is or anyone else. And I I read that amnesia as, like, uh, because he's incapable of taking accountability, Mm -hmm. therefore he loses his his memory. And, like, Mm -hmm. memory is this thing that you only get to have if you handle it properly, Mm -hmm. maybe. Mm -hmm. Is that a a fair reading? Like, do you think that that is how amnesia functions?
2: Well, I don't know if this is how amnesia literally... (laughs) No, not literally. I don't think this is how amnesia literally functions, but definitely (laughs) in the book... (laughs) In the book, you know, Donnie, after they run out of water, Donnie's family kind of falls apart and his mother passes away and his his wife kind of leaves with the younger daughter and Mary Beth's the only one left. And he is so in denial about those traumatic experiences that he chooses to first repress them and then almost forget about them. Mm. And In choosing to forget, he starts to lose sense of who he is, where he is. He chooses to forget that his wife, you know, left him. But then he's also starting to lose memories of when they got married. And Mm. so in not a literal sense, well, in the book it is literal, but outside of the book in a symbolic sense, the message was kind of, you know, if you cannot Face the past, if you choose to forget the past, then the present is going to look altogether confusing. Mm. And maybe that applied more broadly, talking about apocalypse, going back to what we were saying earlier is, you know, if you refuse to look at the various apocalypses of the past, whether that be a disaster, like a natural disaster, or whether it be, you know, something that that humans need to take accountability for and, you know, pay reparations for or repair in some way, then the present is going to look confusing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, how did we get here? Yeah. And it's like, if you really look at history and say, what can I learn from this? Things like a pandemic make you feel like, oh, we have been here before. It does look different now, but this is not unprecedented. Yeah. I can't stand the words unprecedented times. <laughs> I'm like, are you sure? <laughs> Maybe we should just give it a Google to see if this <laughs> has happened already.
0: <laughs> Another interesting thing that happens with memory in the book is that at the beginning of the book, it's introduced as an anthropological case study presented by Dr. Maria mm-hmm. Um, And that is because Dr. Camphor comes to acquire Mary Beth's memories. And the way that she responds to that is very much with a sense that having acquired these memories has imbued her with a responsibility to act, mm-hmm. which is maybe the more appropriate and productive course of action or response to memory. Yeah. So could you talk a bit more about Dr. Maria Camphor and like what function she performs for you in the telling of the story?
2: Sure. So at the end of the road trip, Mary Beth and Donnie arrive in California and Mary Beth is looking for Ida she's still kind of thinking about giving her organs to Ida, but she's also realizing that maybe that was a self aggrandizing mission in the first (laughs) place. And then she kind of gets coerced into signing up for the program anyway. And Ida is nowhere to be found. And the person who ends up getting a portion of her liver is this Dr. Maria Camphor, who has lived her whole life as an anthropologist and is receiving this, liver transplant in exchange for writing a case history of the post-apocalyptic times that they are living in. And when Maria Camphor receives this liver transplant, she immediately inherits all of Mary Beth's memories, which is also something that that cannot literally happen, (laughs) but it happens in the book. (laughs) And... Whereas her life before the surgery was extremely lonely, her husband passed away suddenly some odd years ago, and since then she's been kind of drinking away the pain, and her drinking led to her liver failure, and she's been living alone, surrounded by her books, kind of not really paying attention to what's going on to the world outside, and once she gets these memories, she realizes how much the city has kind of changed around her and how, of course, she's failing to write this case history of post-apocalyptic times because she hasn't driven around and actually witnessed, A, how people are suffering, but B, how people are surviving. And that kind of clicks in her brain. And she spends the rest of the book trying to reunite the characters, Mm. (laughs) the various characters, and kind of also resist the powers that be. And the function that Maria Camphor had in the story, I knew that she was going to be a character from the beginning, mostly because I started writing the book when I was 20. So I was writing a coming of age novel as I was still coming of age. And I kind of put all of my naivete and my insecurity into Mary Beth. And I needed my childness into Mary Beth. And I kind of needed somebody to stand in as the writer who could step outside of everything and be objective, but then also care. So then I created Dr. Maria Camphor to fulfill that purpose for me.
0: Yeah. Mm. So this investigation that Mary Beth is undertaking, which is what is love like for you? She asks multiple people this, multiple people reflect on it. What conclusion did you come to and has it changed since you finished writing the book
2: Mm, I don't know if I came to a conclusion the closest the book gets to a conclusion is Maria kind of reflecting on the fact that because the answer is different every time you ask it Mm. the important thing is not the right answer to the question but the fact that the question is asked again and again Mm. what is love like for you that the the response is going to change for different relationships at different times for different reasons, but maybe asking the question, what is love? Like, how do we love each other? How do we care for each other is as much of an important question at the end of the world as, you know, how are we going to fix this or that? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, you know, we want to live in this world with each other. Yeah. So if we're going to fix the world, then maybe we also have to question how, we're going to live in it together mm. hopefully in love but what does love look like for you <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah so not just um how do we fix it but what are we fixing it for mm. uh, not just how do we run away from catastrophe but what are we running to mm-hmm. um
2: mm-hmm.
0: the book asks more questions than it gives answers but i think that the one answer it gives us that that answer is love that is the the why and possibly the how i agree <laughs> okay i think it's a lovely place to end it thank you kitty thank you so much that was really fun. Thank you. How to Build a Home for the End of the World is available at the Book Lounge. Kili Shinners is the editor of Artrob, as well as the editor of In Review, and a writer and a DJ and the co-founder of the Best Friend Club. Next, I talked to Colin Pigon about the potential of queerness in specfic. Colin works at the Book Lounge and is also a writer and a serious speculative fiction fan. Welcome back to the podcast, Colin.
1: Thank you, it's nice to be back.
0: <laughs> You've basically become our resident spec fic expert that's an honor and i'm very glad
1: that's something i'm happy to be <laughs>
0: <laughs> so earlier this year i was reading keely shinner's book how to build a home for the end of the world yeah. um as you know they're the featured writer in this episode and i was reading alistair MacKay's it doesn't have to be this way yeah. and i was reading those two shortly after reading my first octavia butler not oh no, my second octavia butler which was parable of the sower okay and yes. queerness features in in very different ways yes. in those yeah, books yes yeah. So I wanted to have a conversation about queerness in specfic. What are the various relationships between those two concepts?
1: Right. Well, I think I've been realizing over the last 10-ish years, I've been reading some form of specfic since I was a child. Like it's always been the section I go to when I walk into a bookshop and only recently have I realized that as a genre, it's remarkably queer once you sort of stop and look at it. Mm. It, it kind of always has this, this opening of possibilities and spaces and people who aren't quite people and as part of that, men who aren't quite men, women who aren't quite women or who are in between, that complicate this very rigid and binary approach to gender and sexuality that, you know, we have in reality. Mm. And in parallel to that, I've been realizing one of the reasons why I didn't notice that before is that as a genre, it is remarkably heterosexual in its text, Mm. not in its world building. So it sort of opens up the space, but then doesn't go there. It's, It's sort of background, oh, isn't this interesting? All these people who are different, who are other in some unclear, ineffable way, but trust me, they're all heterosexual. And I think the moment where that kind of just like slapped me in the face was when I read Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl by um, Andrea Lola. Yes, thank you. Where the protagonist is a shapeshifter and basically uses that ability to go on a queer sex romp <laughs> through the States in, in the 90s. And it was this moment of, well, of course, a shapeshifter would do that. I would, if I could shape shift, <laughs> just the possibility of you can shape your body, however you want, you can be perceived and, and, and desired, however you want to be perceived and desired, like, it made me realize that all shapeshifters have always been kind of queer, but no one went and did the thing of just going, yes, it is, let's see what mm. that looks like. And sort of from that point, I looked back on spec fake as the genre, and Notice the big and small ways in which it constantly reminds the reader um, this may feel queer it may look queer but don't worry it's very heterosexual Mm -hmm. and um, I think a good example of that is in I suppose both The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin and Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie do this thing where there are certain societies that complicate our binary understanding of gender. So in the case of Left Hand of Darkness, it's set on a planet where people are genderless until they are experiencing romantic or sexual attraction. And then they take on a gender to engage with each other, sometimes for reproduction, other times not. And that's pretty gay. Come on. But but the text goes out of its way to make it clear that the protagonist because everyone uses he pronouns in the book but the protagonist is a quote unquote proper he a real he mm. as we understand it and his romantic interest when sort of reciprocating his attraction the gender that they take on is female
0: just just a happily a happy coincidence yeah it's just
1: oh well isn't this interesting <laughs> how <laughs> that it, it it's it's very straight who could have guessed and and ancillary justice does a similar thing where Gender doesn't come into play in the society it's set in, and everyone uses she, her pronouns. But the only sort of character in the story that has a canonical sexual relationship is one of two characters that is gendered the way we understand it. So mm-hmm. we established that he's a he, even though the book refers to her as her, I suppose. But he's introduced naked with the visuals he's introduced on a planet that does have gender and is gendered male. So it's kind of like we open the book with just keep that in mind. He's a guy. And then later on, he, he starts a romantic relationship. And there's the second character who is explicitly gendered in a binary way as female. Mm. And again, this is a book that is populated with effectively agender characters because we never know except for those two who were the only two who happen to have a sexual relationship in the book. And just to be clear, I would recommend both of these books. They are excellent books. I really enjoy them. But it is interesting to see how there's this work being put in by the author to kind of go, you know, it feels a bit queer, but but it's not. Worry not, straights.
0: Yeah, so the genre it kind of like queers as a verb like it queers many things yes absolutely Uh, but then leaves queerness out of the queering i mean you especially encounter this with older stuff which makes sense like our understanding of queerness is or general acceptance of queerness has changed more than anything else in the last 20 years or whatever but then it reads as a lack of imagination especially when it's like semi-utopian futures where so much is better than the present moment
1: but not this but not
0: this yeah
1: (laughs) but everyone is still properly straight yeah Recently, I have read books that kind of tried to, to experiment with that in interesting ways. Another weird relationship I think that queerness has with Specfic, and more specifically with the sort of collapse of society genre, you know, things get bad and then society becomes reactionary and usually some sort of religious extremist force takes over. And there's this long history of sort of signifying that by portraying Queer bashing effectively. Yeah. So some of the first victims of these extremist groups are queer individuals. And it's this admittedly useful shorthand to kind of go, oh, it's that bad. They're just killing the gays now. But at the same time, it's this weird, almost different version of fridging. It's an extension of barrier gays, I suppose. It's mm-hmm. sort of like this person exists to be gay and die and tell the reader that things are really, really bad. Yeah. In that regard, I will say I, I really appreciated that uh, It Doesn't Have to Be This Way by Alistair McKay centers the story on queer characters. So while it still leans into these narratives of when shit gets bad, the queer get it first, the three main characters are all queer men. Mm. And so it's not a trauma and a pain that kind of happens on the side to side characters that, you know, it's sad and it's upsetting and oh my gosh, but you end up functionally spending more time with how the straight character feels about this gay bashing than what the queer people feel about it. Yeah. And instead, and it doesn't have to be this way, because all three of the main characters are queer, we're experiencing these tragedies firsthand and it forces the reader to sit with it. It's not a signifier. It's not a narrative shorthand. These, these are people Mm. who, whose relationships and connections and means of understanding themselves as people are eroded and attacked and poisoned. And it's a very effective way to kind of contextualize. This is what that would feel like.
0: Yeah. So whereas in some other books, it's kind of used as a prop. And it doesn't have to be this way. It's a very it's the real story. Tragedy. It's,
1: it's the characters that we are attached to by virtue of reading the book. The, yeah. the, these are our point of view characters. These are the stories we follow. And
0: but also so affecting partly because this is a book that's set in Cape Town yes. in the very, very near future. Yeah. Um, and it's very scarily compelling and like I I kind of had this overlay when I was walking through the city after reading it I kind of could see the city as it was and then I could also see it on fire I I cannot
1: (laughs) I cannot look at Signal Hill the same way anymore because that is sort of where the rich people compound ends up being being built and it's just I really enjoyed reading it set in a city that I am familiar with yeah this is because you know most spec fake happens in the obvious places I would say (laughs) and and it's nice to have it set in in somewhere that's it hits closer to home when yeah. it's at home and the book is about you know environmental collapse and therefore social collapse and to kind of parallel this because it has a stare into the void tone to it like watch should go bad to in parallel of the story of things are going bad for everyone to center the story on and this is how it specifically goes bad yeah for queer people it's not like they are experiencing this as queer people full stop they're experiencing this as people like everyone mm. else who are living through the end of the world and are also queer yeah
0: it,
1: it, it does this interesting sort of exploration of, of intersections mm-hmm. where it's not just you know you're too poor to get into the safe places or you're rich enough to get into the safe places like the one of the three characters who does make it into sort of these safeguarded wealthy places his part of the story I, is heartbreaking because he's so profoundly alienated Mm. because while he's accepted in that space, tolerated in that space because he's a white man with money, there's this sort of constant undercurrent of the people closest to him don't get it.
0: Yeah. He kind of like he wins in the the dystopian reality where the strategy is get the resources. The resources are scarce. You must protect them. And so he kind of wins in that sense. Like he's got a luxurious life even as the world burns around him. But it's, the book makes it clear that he didn't win.
1: He did not. Absolutely. And again, it happens because, you know, uh, privilege can only get you so far. And if the world is ending, it's not winning in general. Yeah. But again, it does this work of going And on top of that, specifically because he's queer, there's this compounding effect Mm. where there are no avenues for him to like build a family and, and find companionship. And
0: or even just have an authentic existence.
1: Like there's this detail that I found really charming, where there is only one queer bar in the entire compound and it's super tacky and he doesn't like going there. It's not his vibe, but he gets invited there by his colleagues who are trying to be nice and supportive. And that was such a nice touch to kind of go Go, well, hey, we'll have a nice night out with you and we'll even go to the queer bar. And he yeah. hates the queer bar. But that's the only option because at those levels of rarefied air, everything is normative. Mm. And the best case scenario is that you're tolerated, but you don't get to actually take on space. You don't actually get to be your full self and also bring your full family. Like yeah. his loneliness comes from the fact that his people, his found family is not there with him. I thought that was that was very very effective writing to kind of just parallel the the broader tragedy of social collapse and mm. the specific tragedy of of queer alienation. Mm. Very clever.
0: So the book is called "It Doesn't Have to Be This Way," which becomes the name of a guerrilla project that mm. the characters run, where they basically create these virtual realities for people to briefly enter into, and it's like the world before climate collapse—lush, green spaces, beautiful spaces. And the three main characters meet at a tree planting conference. Yes. Like there's a way in which queerness and trying to counteract the damage that has been done and is being done, like queerness is like this healing potential, which is also present in Keeley's novel, which I think yes. is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: But I do think that like homophobia is a failure of imagination. Yeah. It sort of is this way of looking at the world in these very, this is correct, this is incorrect ways. Mm. And like you belong with you and that's all it is. And To experience queerness functionally makes you realize, oh no, like none of these things are as fixed as they were told to me. This is how we do it means nothing. Who cares if this is how we've always done it or whatever? It doesn't make sense to me as an embodied being. I don't think it's surprising that queer people tend, tend statistically, to be more on the progressive side of things, more of wanting things to change and be different because... As part of our lived experience, we understand that this isn't the end-all be-all of things. It can be better. It can right. be improved. It can, it can grow and broaden to encompass more people and a more thorough understanding of care and of community. And I will say what I appreciated about How to Build a Home at the End of the World is the fact that the book avoids the trope of we know this is bad because queer people are suffering yeah. it actually does this very interesting thing where it goes no i believe queer people are uniquely equipped to build community when the world collapses yeah because we have learned the skills to build our own communities because the existing paradigm seldom functions with us in mind so when those systems collapse, it's like, well, you know, it's it's a Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, It's not going to be as harsh of a wake-up call for a queer person who has had to do that work anyway. Mm. And that was an interesting reversal of the yeah. trope to kind of go, queerness can thrive yeah. as the world collapses.
0: Also, because that book sets up two models, so it associates the... Like male head of the household nuclear family mm-hmm. to the more expansive care-based queer yes. family and it sets up two different concepts of survival that associate with the two different ones the, the male head of the household nuclear family yeah is um survival at the expense of other people like hoard mm. the resources protect them um it's yeah, true like a kind of hostile suspicious interaction with the rest of the world whereas the queer organization is survival is about cooperation and about loving relationships like that that is what will get you through very interesting okay we have time for one more book okay
1: let me choose carefully then (laughs) (laughs) i think i would like to bring up kindred by tavia butler because Kindred is, again, one of those books that uses, I think, specfic to its full potential. Uh, so it's it's time traveling, it's set in the U.S., and the protagonist is a black woman. So in the canon, this just fairly straightforward adventure into the unknown is is a nightmare for her, because when she travels in the past, because it's the U.S., in that context, regardless of who she is, what she does, she is treated as an enslaved person, and she kind of has to grapple with that. and So that's just an interesting aspect of what spec fic can do when you actually ask yourself interesting questions and you kind of go, this is what the thought experiment that we can have. But there's one detail in that book that I find really fascinating, which is that in the quote unquote present day, I say quote unquote because the book is set in the 70s, she is married to a white man. And it's sort of like just a background detail that could have been skipped, the story would have functioned just the same. Mm. But by including that, and by later in the book, having both her and her husband go back in time in, in sort of a antebellum era, their relationship ceases to exist. They are a loving couple committed to each other, but in the context of the past that relationship is not possible mm. it cannot exist and therefore it does not exist right and to me there was something fascinatingly queer about that where if the environment is not capable of perceiving a relationship as a relationship then can there be one
0: yeah Yeah, relationships don't just have an internal reality. They have a social meaning as well. And
1: it, it challenges this notion of you hear a lot of people saying, well, if you're queer, be queer. I don't care what you do in your private life. Yeah. But it's not a matter of caring. It's a matter of if the environment structurally, philosophically, intellectually, semantically, does not recognize that relationship, then that relationship is constantly on the fire. It's Mm -hmm. constantly being undermined. It constantly has to hide. And more importantly, rather than being a place of nurturing and care and and companionship, it is a threat. Mm -hmm. It's a danger for their own protection. These two people who, again, are married, have been a couple for many years cannot be there for each other because they would both be put into extreme danger if they were. Mm. And I thought that was, that was a, again, a very clever use of the setting to kind of not just go, and people in the past don't understand. No, no, no. And themselves in the past are not allowed to exist right. in their completedness because there is no room for that mm. in the environment they're in. And yeah, I thought that was, again, apply a queer reading to books that aren't canonically queer. The book is extremely heterosexual. Yeah. It can enrich text in really interesting ways. And I find Specfic is just very fertile ground for, for these kinds of sort of reading and broadenings. And as you said, queering a text is just a really fun hobby. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> is.
0: Thank you, Conan.
1: You're very welcome. This is lovely. Thank you for this chat.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. This episode was produced by myself and Anu Burnett. We are part of a podcasting collective called VoiceNote, and you can check out our other work at voicenote.co.za. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us since it helps other people find us. Or you can help other people find us by sharing the podcast with them directly. Thanks to Keely and Colin for making the time to be on this episode. And thanks, as always, to our friends at The Book Lounge. This season of a reader's community was made possible by a grant from the National Arts Council, which is very much appreciated. Join us for our final episode of the season next week. Until then, keep reading.